Sometimes the most memorable stories we carry with us from military service were just the product of the branch of service we were in or the deployment we were on and the crazy stuff that happens when people with a mission and a common cause live in close quarters. The Garrison Project Podcast tells those stories, your stories, and builds connections across generations of veterans. The Garrison Project, veterans connecting with veterans through the power of storytelling. And now your host, Dan Ettinger, co-founder of the Garrison Project. Hey, good morning, everybody. This is Dan Ettinger from the Garrison Project. Getting ready to kick off episode 14 of the Garrison Project podcast. It is the morning of September 15th. Hurricane Florence has basically uh, made landfall. All's well way up uh, inland here in Raleigh. It didn't steer north. It kind of steered south. So we've just gotten a bunch of bunch of rain and stuff like that. So no, uh, no worries here. Uh, power was out for, I think, a grand total of about two hours. So certainly not an impact or nothing Nothing even remotely close to what people are dealing with down towards uh, down towards the coast, down towards Charleston, up to up to Wilmington, and all that. So definitely took a uh, definitely a close call that we got lucky on up here in Raleigh. It seems like that's how it's pretty much gone. We've done I think we've been here for eight years now, and maybe a few hurricanes, and none have really really blasted us. Unlike a long time ago when I was going to school in Auburn, we had one that that jumped, came up into the Gulf was pointing towards Pensacola, had some friends come up from Pensacola who were in flight flight training, stay with us up in Opelika. That hurricane basically took a pole vault and jumped over Pensacola and then squished Opelika. It was brutal. We were out of power for seven days. It was very, very unpleasant. And the worst part was, I'm sure this happens too in a lot of instances, the worst part was we could leave our house, drive, maybe a mile or so away and there was lights on and all that kind of thing made, made no sense to us, but so be it, right? Who knows how you put the grid back together anyway. So pretty much all done with that. Just good and uh, good and rainy outside. And yeah, not much to report else elsewise on the, on the weather. Like I said, there at the beginning about to kick off episode 14, have an interview with Karen Sendra, uh, who I connected with a while ago. Uh, her background was in air force security Really interesting story there, and doubly so in what she's involved with now with respect to support to veterans. So I think you'll you'll enjoy that quite a bit. Just a couple of notes before we get started. Uh, one is the same things I've been kind of beating the drum about over the past few episodes. Uh, take a look at the rucksack on our website, the website being www.thegarrisonproject.com. Take a look at the rucksack. Uh, that's where we have resources that people send in, and I take a look at them and make sure it's it's nothing crazy, but get them posted up there. That way, other people can take a look and use those for their own for their own benefit. These are things that, as a veteran, you found useful. So maybe it's uh, some insurance thing or some you know some discount tickets to something or some other sort of discount program. Whatever the case may be, whether it's social or financial or you know some sort of products or services or whatever, 10% off this. I'm just throwing some ideas out there. Anything along those lines that you found that are useful, please send them in. As we build up things on there, I'll put some sort of a filing system in place so that people can search for what it is that they're, that the, that they're looking for. Uh, second part is the uh, Veterans Community Center. This is way super at the beginning. 
I uh, don't have a lot of participation here. I hope it grows because of where we're going to take the Garrison project, but hop on there, make a profile when you get a chance, not asking for any personal information, just basic contact info. So that as the, as the effort grows and we implement the resource sharing piece, which will be the Garrison project long-term that we'll have our community already built so that people can trade uh, resources and support one another the way that we as veterans are really programmed to do from our time in the service and, and what we've learned and what we've been successful with. So hop on there, make a profile, easy as can be. Again, no personal information, just some name and some contact info, and that's about it. Last piece is about to spin off something I've been working on for a number of years here. Uh, I've about got the website ready to go. I'm working on some some content, and uh, eventually, in the not-too-distant future, there'll be a book, and it's called Deep, Deep Leadership, Applying Submarine Skills to the High-Tech Workplace. And it comes from a, a lot of experience uh, that I've had in both in the Navy and kind of growing up professionally in the Navy with 20 years in the submarine force and specifically the nuclear power community, but also in what I've seen and how to apply that in workplaces where you have super smart people working on super difficult tasks. And so connecting those two, the smart people, difficult tasks, Connecting those with a mission is how the, the naval nuclear power community has been successful, specifically on the technical side. It's all, it's all technical side, but specifically in the world where you're building high-tech stuff or managing or maintaining high-tech stuff. It's an incredibly rigorous environment, incredibly rewarding, and the people are incredibly smart. And it's pretty easy to take that model and look at today. Uh, I came from the smart grid business where people are building software and solutions and hardware for utility metering. It's the same thing. It's technology, smart people building solutions in a rigorous environment with a tough customer. Uh, the skill set is incredibly transferable. And maybe the things that I've been, uh, when I look back, the things where I've felt I've been most successful have been in helping build mission around mission and organization around executing technology and maintaining technology and those sorts of things. So the connection there again, smart people, hard tasks, difficult mission, nuclear Navy, smart people, difficult tasks, uh, and a mission in, in the quote unquote civilian world in the high tech workplace. And I've just really worked, worked hard over the past couple of years to codify some some tools that you can use if you're in the management of those sorts of pieces of a business some tools and some applications you can use to to get better that's kind of what we're all about you know the garrison projects about veterans connecting the veterans and then uh supporting each other i see deep deep leadership as technology leaders supporting each other in a community uh, sort of platform and trading lessons learned and best practices and the tools that I've put together to get better and to, to do our jobs better. And uh, I, hope, I hope you'll, you'll, you'll see the same thing again, super proud of it. It's been a, a ton of effort, probably another week or two before I roll it out, but I'll probably beat the drum a few times here on the Garrison project podcast. And I uh, hope you'll take a look at that as we, as we get rolling. So without further ado, episode 14, 
of the Garrison Project podcast, Karen Sendra, Air Force Security. Enjoy the show, folks. Hey, everybody, this is Dan Edinger with the Garrison Project, coming to you live from Cary, North Carolina, worldwide corporate headquarters of the Garrison Project. Uh, this is episode 14 of the Garrison Project podcast. Have a great uh, great interview coming up here with Karen Sendra. Really interested in, in the what what she's up to and what she's done in the veteran transitioning military and veteran work and veteran place or excuse me, uh, veteran space. And we'll talk about that. Karen, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, welcome to the show, and uh, I'm glad glad to meet you. Yeah, Dan, thanks for the invite. I'm happy to be here, and anytime we can talk about things that are going on in the veteran space, um, my door's always open. Yeah, we, we just spoke for just a minute or two here before we got going, and besides, uh, I, I don't even know when we connected online, but uh, I really see, see and respect the amount of effort you're putting into it, and you sound like you're doing some some really cool stuff, so I'll really be interested in hearing about that. To kick that off, though, tell us a little bit about your, uh, you know, your yourself now, a little bit about your your personal life and where you're at and what you're up to right now. Sure. So I was in California, out in the San Diego area. I was out there for a little over five years. Um, great state, had a great job, and a layoffs kind of hit everybody fast and hard. So a lot of my team got dismantled, including myself. Um, that put me in a position to consider relocating. Um, on LinkedIn, just kind of working the 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 different veteran topics that I discussed on my on my videos and on my posts, I came across a connection who's a fellow veteran himself who owns a business out in um, Austin, Texas called Cloud Co-op. He's a Navy veteran. Um, he just could kind of see the passion that I had behind addressing these things that are going on with our vets and thought that I would be a good representative to head up his veteran services for cloud co-op. So I ended up relocating out to Austin here about uh, almost a month ago now. So that's, that's what's going on professionally. School-wise, um, I've always been a big education advocate. So I'm, I'm still working on my PhD. I'm a PhD candidate right now. And that's been a long time coming. <laughs> it's been a lot of work trying to <laughs> what, stick what out area? the long haul. What area of study are you doing? Um, so the concentration, it's, it, it's a PhD in business administration with a concentration on leadership. So I'm intercepting it with particular studies that have to do with veterans in the workforce um, mm-hmm. and or perceptions that civilians have with us being in the role that we are. So it's, it ties into a lot of what I discuss on LinkedIn. Yeah, I, I was, I was going to ask that, but it sounds like that is the answer is what's the ultimate vision. And it all centers around, it sounds like. Um, veterans in in the workforce. Is that right? Exactly. And just opening up that dialogue, um, the uncomfortable dialogue that people, they know (laughs) it's there, it's the pink elephant. Um, People either tend to retreat when I bring up these subjects because they're afraid of what others will say, or they're ready just to share because they're, you know, they've been looking for an opportunity to be able to actually explain what they're feeling. Um, And ideally in an unbiased judgment-free zone, which we know on social media, that's not possible. But <laughs> we put it out there anyway just to get it going, and it seems to be pretty effective. So um, I'm happy to be a part of it. Before we get into uh, your story about your time in the military and your, your career in the military, any, uh, any hobbies? What, uh, what keeps you busy when you're not studying and doing uh, things around the veteran, veterans in the workplace? 
Sure. Um, I would say that anything to do with just, um, you know, to keep, in, to keep into yourself with your physical health, that's really important to me. So I love to be outside. You know, anything to do outside physically, obviously being in the gym and having a healthy diet and that lifestyle has always been very important for me. So I'll continue to do that as long as I'm capable because I think that's very significant <laughs> for people that are going through change to take care of their bodies and their minds. So that's that's kind of what I do when I'm not um, trusting my brain to write reports and document research. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, What's the biggest physical challenge outdoors that you've undertaken? Biggest physical challenge? Um, yeah. Deployments? <laughs> <laughs> we'll, okay. just, we'll just put that Good out point. there. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, physically, I can exert a lot of energy and I consider myself to be, you know, fairly strong. You know, even mm -hmm. as a female, a lot of females don't get branded as having much um, upper body strength and things like that. I think I've kind of broken the mold with that stereotype, but I would say deployments. Um, interestingly enough, the deployments that I had that were the most challenging were as a civilian, not as active duty. So oh, when I got out of the service, mm -hmm. I did. Department of Defense contracts um, on various assignments overseas, and they weren't the most smooth um, operations. <laughs> there was there were times where we didn't have, um, you know, we didn't have our tent set up. You know, the air conditioning was completely out. We we're sharing the tents with the canine units. There's bugs everywhere. I mean, that's to me that's that's stressful. Where <laughs> physical activity is really not. I agree. It is stressful. I don't know if I could take it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to hear more about that. But before we get into that, I guess we should follow the timeline here. Uh, tell us about uh, where you were at when you joined the military, how you got in the military, and, and what you did, your specialty and, and that kind of thing. Tell us about your military career. Okay, sure. So I'm, I'm a Texan. I always let people know. So I was born and raised in Texas, even though I've moved a lot and a lot of people know me from being in California. I'm actually from the Dallas area. So when I enlisted, I was actually living with my grandparents. Um, my, my parents passed away when I was younger. So I, my brother, and my sister and I kind of got, we kind of went in different directions as we got older. And I ended up staying in the South, which was with my grandparents, which were my mom's parents, because they were the only living, um, grandparents that I had. So I consider myself a Texan. I was in my grandparents' house living with them at the time. And I remember after 9-11, looking to my grandmother, who was a Marine and my grandfather was in the army, um, and just awesome. asking her, just kind of like, you know, Grandma, what do you think? You know, I really, I really want to enlist. And since we are such a, you know, patriotic family, there wasn't any question, which was great to have the support. It was like, if that's what you want to do, go, you know, yeah. go for it. So I had that support. And my challenge was trying to figure out which branch I wanted to go into. So I went around the block and, you know, I was going to the different um, recruiters and trying to get the pitches. And I didn't even know what job I wanted. I just knew I wanted to enlist. So that took me a little time to whittle down the Air Force because when I went out to the recruiter station, they were, I call it recruiter station because they're all lined up next to each other. The Army, the Navy, they're all in yep. one row. I just yep. kind of hopped to each side, just kind of finding out who had the best feel. Um, I actually went into the Navy office and there was a waiting list back in the day when I was enlisting for over a year to take any more females. So to me, I was like, oh, no, no, no. I don't want to wait a year. I want to go now. So yep. it was interesting. I'm not sure what the reasons were, but they, they had to put me on a wait list. And I was like, no, I don't want to be waitlisted. So then I just walked to the next office. <laughs> it just yeah. kind of went was to this, a row. Um, a question, it happened was to this, be the Air Force. Was yeah. this immediately after 
Um, like, not immediately. It was probably within the year. The, the reason why yeah, I say that is I, I actually ran a, a Navy recruiting district for NRD Ohio. So had all the uh, enlisted Navy recruiters working for me. So if I really thought maybe I could figure out why we had such a, a wait list for females, that's, that's kind of funny. Right. It was around that time. And that's, that's, you know, I don't, I don't, I didn't really get the details, but I remember walking in there and I was like, okay, you know, I want to be a Navy pilot. You know, I, I thought I had all these great ideas and they just kind of looked yeah. at me and they're like, how old are you? And there's going to be a wait list. I was like, okay. <laughs> so I didn't have interest in that. I thought, well, I don't want to wait. I'm ready to go. So I walked yeah. to the next yeah. office, which happened to be the Air Force. Um, really nice. You know, your typical Air Force office, you'd expect it to be the way it was. And I had a good conversation with the recruiter. He seemed like he understood my, my sense of urgency, why I wanted to go in. He helped me pick my job. You know, he explained to ASVAB all the stuff that was going on. So I felt pretty confident with the Air Force, but I was very torn between um, walking into the Marine Corps office. But my grandmother <laughs> actually told me that that was not the best idea for me. She was a Marine, so she wasn't disrespecting the branch. She uh-huh. just had insight from the time when she was one of the first female enlisted. And she just said, honey, I think that, you know, you'd fit in well there, but we want you to go travel the world and see it the Air Force way. (laughs) So I just agreed with her. I trusted her instincts and said, you know, you know, grandma, that's, that's what I'm going to do. So I enlisted um, with the Air Force. Well, question, question about that. Um, When, uh, when you look at the time you spent around your grandmother, and knowing your military experience, do you see things in her that just scream out to you, you know, early female Marine or whatever you'd, you'd phrase that? Is there just things about her that you that you said that is the Marine Corps in her? Well, sure. My grandma, and to me, and I had nothing but respect for the Marines. And I mean, I, I'm one of those. I, I love all of our branches for different reasons because we all are part of the mission with, you know, different objectives. So. You know, I'm I'm very neutral party with that. I guess that's the Air Force in me. Um, but now my grandmother was a very strong, independent female. So she fits the Marine, um, <laughs> what I would imagine most female Marines would be like, um, you know, especially with her time being a grandmother. She was enlisted yeah. long, long ago when it was very difficult for them to be accepted. So oh, cool. I just trusted her insight and just kind of went with, with what grandma recommended. Yeah. Very cool. So you, uh, so you picked the Air Force. I did. So I picked the Air Force. Um, I took the ASVAB, did well on the ASVAB. I had my degree already. So I got a lot of slack as to why I wanted to consider enlisted over officer. Mm-hmm. So most people assume if you have a degree, you'd want to go officer. I didn't want to do that. And the reason why is because I want to be enlisted experience. I just, yeah. it was just a choice. I said, you know, I can always go officer later if I love this. I want to do this as a career. I can always mm-hmm. switch over, you know, let me just, I wanted to come in at the ground level and just experience it from that perspective. So I was determined to get that experience. Um, yeah. So what I ended up picking was security forces, which most people are like, you know, not there's anything wrong with that, but they were just like, I guess they were expecting me to go another route as well. Um, I kind of went the unexpected route all the way around with my time in service. Cause I, I had an idea in mind what I wanted to experience and I didn't want the cookie cutter job and I didn't necessarily want to be away from um, the action, so to speak. I wanted to be in the middle of it because to me, that's why I wanted to serve. So I picked that position and right after I arrived, it was actually Ramstein Air Base Germany was our assignment. So Mm -hmm. a big group of us from training all went to the same place, which was kind of nice. 
And had, when I arrived, probably within. Much, I'm sorry. Had you done much traveling before you joined the service? So that was what was kind of a culture shock. No, at that point I was a Texan. So <laughs> I've been to other states at that point, um, traveled around the, within the country. But at that point, that was the very first out of country traveling oh, yeah. I did. So it was a culture shock very for cool. sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in a, in a good way, but it was, you know, it was not Texas. So I was like, okay, we're, we're somewhere completely different. <laughs> so within the first month or so, I, we, um, a group of us actually went up for the, they call it the elite guard, which is the special security squadron attachment of the security forces, which is kind of the high detail police officers of the air force. And I ended mm -hmm. up getting selected for that detail, um, which was great because it put me right in the midst of all the top tier people, um, not just within our branch, but within, you know, the world in multiple countries that would come right. through Ramstein air base headquarters. So that was a very, um, exciting opportunity I thought and I was really happy and I felt like that was the right place for me to go so that's kind of how the the Air Force career took off where something that's uh, really jumping out at me is you sound like just a, a very focused person do you agree are you very focused I am where, where do you think that came from uh, you know it's you're talking about a very early in your military career being focused on specific things where'd that come from I think upbringing, um, childhood. So I didn't have a typical childhood. I had a lot of loss when I was when I was young. You know, losing my parents, yeah. having to grow up faster than most of the people around me, having a lot of hardships throughout my life. Um, you know, you know, having jobs, not having jobs, having homes, not having homes. I mean, I've been through almost everything. And I think tough. even back then, um, I just was cut from a different cloth because of my family. Um, I have a lot of people that served in the military, so I come from that line. And it's always been about discipline, um, you know, put your ducks in a row, make your to-do list. I just was always around that energy from my father to my grandmother. And that's mm -hmm. definitely the military side. But I think it just rubbed off on me and I just inherited that as my own and cool. made sure I was always as squared away as I could be even when I was younger. It, it definitely screams out from just the way that you communicate. Your, your manner of speaking is very focused. Awesome job there. So you had, uh, you were in the, you did make the elite guard, right? Right. And where, uh, where this was, was this still in Germany or where did you go? Where'd the, where'd it go after that? Sure. So that's the special duty assignment there. The way it works is if you're attached to that, you're not allowed to deploy. You have to stay assigned to the four star and, or wherever it is that they go. So there were, um, smaller term travels, but there wasn't, you weren't allowed to go on your typical, um, you know, six month deployment with the rest of the security forces because you were on a separate detail. So it yeah. pretty much comprised of us being in Germany and within the headquarters area for the most part. And were you assigned for, for personal? Was this a personal security detail or how, how did it that was. work out? Okay. Right. Um, so the four star, um, the four star and the three star back when I was in, they, they changed command. So I had started with General Fogelsong and moved to General Light. Um, okay. Those generals were there when I was in, and we were we were their primary detail for the security operations. So that's that's who we served and protected. Where the the regular security forces guys, so to speak, they had all the typical um, LE type day to day yeah. Yeah. Um, operations. Um, that's yeah, that's kind of what the difference was. We had our special assignment where this is what our mission was, and then there were the other operations that went on around you. So you're in the elite guard, you're there for a while. Where, where did the career lead next? 
Sure. So I was in for about four years. Um, then I got an honorable medical discharge for asthma. <laughs> I always have to kind of laugh about it because I always had top PT, PT scores. So I I kind of think it was a political downsizing um, movement because there really was no reason to cut the percentage of security forces that they did at the time, but they did. Mm-hmm. So I think they were looking for loopholes. So I just took it and said, you know what, I'm going to go experience the other side. I'm not going to push against it. I'm going to go ahead and get my honorable separation and I'm going to go DOD and become a civilian contractor. So that's what I did. Um, well, um, I got out so around this, 2007. Yeah. So I'm sorry. Go ahead. You got out around 2007. Go ahead. Got out around 2007 and was talking to some of my buddies. A lot of them were um, Marines, uh, you know, Marine, re- Marine veterans, and they, they were on contracts overseas doing security work. And they were like, they would scoop you up in a minute, Karen, because you're a female, you've got right. weapons yeah. training, you've clearances. Why don't you jump on because they need you? So I said, okay, you know, I was, I was ready to go. Um, I, I wanted to find another mission. I wanted to find something compatible to the military. I still wanted to be a part of a team. And yeah. I didn't want to lose that, all of that, that I loved about being in the service just because I wasn't in it anymore. So for me, it was a no-brainer to go DOD and just jump on the contract bandwagon. And I did that off and on for about six years. Well, before we uh, get into a little bit more about that and how that led you to all the all the work that you're doing now, let's talk about the the story or two from uh, your about four years in the Air Force and especially some of the stuff you did, which is pretty cool. Do you have a couple of stories from that that if you fast forward 20 years in the future that you think will still be with you and you'll tell family, but when they ask you about your time in the Air Force, you'll say, well, here's the story that means the most to me. Any of those? Um, I think the highlight of it, I mean, for the most part, I had a pretty good pretty good time. I mean, I didn't have, um, we all have our ups and downs in the service, and there's no sense in going to all those stories with different types of leadership and all of those. I would say what stuck out for me was just having the opportunity to be on the elite guard, to be picked up on that special um, duty detail, because not everybody did get that assignment. It wasn't something they just handed out to people. So it felt like, in a way that, you know, I kind of earned that. And it was great to have the exposure to the level of people that I had. Um, even though I wasn't necessarily young, because I enlisted at 25. So I was older than most of my peers. Um, having that exposure to those type of individuals, the decision makers, top tier, I really liked that. And I really appreciate having that, having that exposure, because um, I really think that it did set the tone for things that I hope to do in the future. So that's what I would say my takeaway is. In your, in your perception and what you saw in other other parts of the service or other parts, of, even just, if it's just the Air Force, did was it your perception that your unit was even more closely knit than what you saw in other places? Not necessarily. Um, I, I mean, I wouldn't say that. I mean, because I, I had friends that were security forces that worked on different patrols and whatnot, and they were very tight, a very tight group. I would actually say we were probably not as close as the ones that were out on the street, so to speak. And obviously that has to do with their mission. Um, You know, their day-to-day tasks were probably a lot more grueling than what ours were. (laughs) So, you know, they got stuck with the details, with the DUIs and all of that. And that's not always the most exciting um, things to deal with day in, day out. So usually from my experience as a civilian, because when I got out of the service is when I really actually learned what a team was about more so because of the intensity of the jobs that I took. I think when you have a a very challenging job, you know, that's when your team is 
absolutely critical. And if you have a, a strong group, that's it's really going to you know make or break you. So I think the harder the job, the tighter the team. Um, it's it's usually from what I've experienced, that's what I've seen. You come you come together tighter when you really have a lot on your shoulders. So I would say Makes that sense, it's yeah. you know definitely individually based. But for me, I, I didn't really feel. I mean, we we were a team for sure, but it wasn't anything like it was when I got out of the service and was a contractor, that was a whole different team. Uh, in the elite guard there and the build up to that and your time there, I'm guessing you got the full complement of, of cool uh, specialty kind of training, like maybe some offensive driving stuff and some special weapons kind of thing. Any, is that, is that the case? Yeah. I, I don't know if it was specialty. I mean, I, I feel like we got the same training as our counterparts. We just had more opportunities to do different assignments than our, um, than our uh, counterparts that did the other kind of day-to-day job. That was really the difference. The opportunities and the people that we had a chance to meet face-to-face was what made the units completely different. Very cool that uh, I had some experience uh, in Kuwait. I was at one of the uh, joint visitors bureaus, which you you may have worked with uh, as you moved VIPs around. And so got a chance to work with, with some, uh, some cool personal security folks, including uh, what's the guy's name who is, uh, the uh, the four star that went to the CIA, I think it was. What's his name? Super famous, army. Darn it! And then there was the issue with uh, uh, where he got his he got fired because of some sort of an affair. What's his name? Oh, I think I know what you're talking about. I'm sure it'll pop yeah. up shortly. Oh, it's killing me. Yeah, yeah. The guy, uh, you know, he was the, basically the face of the war effort, really. He uh, he came down out of Iraq down to Kuwait to meet the president and do a, a briefing, and uh, we we kind of hung out with his personal security officer for a while. He was possibly one of the more intimidating people I've ever met in my life. He was yeah. he clearly had his stuff together. But anyway, so you transition out, and was when you went into contracting, was it the same? It sounds like it's the same flavor of work that you wanted that, and that's where you landed. Is that right? Right. It was same. It was still the security arena, but it was completely different jobs than I did in the service. So there was a common thread to the basic things, but it was each contract was different than the last contract. So it was nice to keep getting to be able to keep adding on to my skill sets, um, but not the same. Being a civilian contractor, being active duty, to me, apples and oranges because the rules um, are completely different. <laughs> so, I mean, just depending on which contract company you work for. And, yeah your team. Um, the great thing about it is everybody I worked with as a contractor, we were all veterans. So I got to just keep bringing the family with me, so to speak, or work with them yeah. even out of the service. And that's really what I wanted. So that was a nice, to me, that was a nice platform out because I really wasn't ready. And a lot of me still not, and I don't think I ever will, to, ready to just give up all of those belief systems. It's too embedded in my DNA. I, I don't think I could if I wanted to. So. I was going to ask that. What is the, if there's a top one or two things that are different about in and out because you were in kind of parallel fields there, what would those one or two things be that were starkly different? It sounds like kind of the rules uh, sort of thing, or how would, how would you answer that? Sure. I would say the biggest difference from my perspective is that um, I had a lot more freedom to make decisions as a civilian contractor. Um, you know, which obviously makes, would make sense, you know, to a certain degree, especially being active duty, you know, you kind of have to follow, you follow in the chain of command, 
being a contractor, we still had our chain of command, but a lot of us were at the same level. So there was a lot more freedom to be able to make decisions. And I liked that. So I would say that was, um, that was a huge difference. Just having those, um, you know, a little bit more accolades to behind your name that you can make a little bit more uh, leadership calls. That was, that was a significant piece. And of course the pay was completely different. <laughs> Active <laughs> duty to contractor right? back then there was a huge difference. Um, I understand now it's not quite as good as it used to be, but it was very enticing back then to become a contractor. Would you, uh, would you say that that making the transition the way you did and landing in the places you did, was that all good? Is it, what's the downside if there is any to, to the way that you did that? I would say, I mean, each person is unique too. So it's hard for me just to say how it's going to be for all. I would say the downside to it was, and it's really not a downside, but my awareness of how the world works could no longer be ignored. So what I mean by that is when I'd come home back to the country, I just started seeing more and more flaws. And I think that's because when you have a lot of experience and you get out there in the world, so to speak, and you don't stay safe in your little comfort zone, you're going to see things differently and you can't, you can't take it back. You can't take back what you've seen and you can't take back what you know. And so you have to really own that. That's not the easiest. I think a lot of, um, especially combat vets struggle with that. Um, it's not so much a PTSD thing. It's just your awareness has shifted. All of a sudden, you know and see things that a lot of people around you don't. How, what do you do with all of that? Um, how do you, you know, you want to you want to share your stories with people, but not all people are really that open to hearing about things. Yeah. So I think that was probably the, the downside. Um, you just, you make yourself different. And to me, different is good. But when you're coming home into a world that where a lot of people are very much in the sheep-like mentality, you're going to stand out and you have to be prepared to be okay with not being how you once were and owning that difference. Yeah, that's come up in, in a couple of other episodes about you can pick a veteran out because of the way they carry themselves and the way they communicate. It, feel, it feels to me like it carries a responsibility and and consequences isn't the right way to say it, but, uh, you know, there's two sides to it, you know, two sides to that blade that it's a good thing and a bad thing that you, you get recognition because you, you've experienced a lot more, but it carries with a responsibility to do the right things with that. Um, any, any thoughts there? Does that, does that resonate at all? Sure. I mean, you know, the more, the more responsibility, the more power, so to speak, you have, the more switches you can pull and, and make decisions. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's a very stressful place. You have to be in the right mindset because it's always about everyone around you and not yourself. And you have, you know, not everybody in active duty got to experience that position of authority, so to speak. Um, you know, like for myself, I was enlisted, I chose enlisted and I got out. So I didn't rise through the ranks up to, you know, curl, so on and so forth, because I, I didn't stay in long enough, but when I got out and I was able to actually jump into positions that were um, not jump, but they were, you know, fairly high up in the civilian side, it, I, I took that seriously. I was like, okay, everything I do affects everyone around me. This is serious now. You know, I have to be on my game. Um, out of sight is not out of mind. You need to keep yourself. So a lot of the military stuff went with me even as a civilian, but it can go sideways if you're not level-headed when you're needing yeah. to make those decisions. Um, 
you know, not everybody handles stress well. Not everybody handles authority well. So it definitely can go sideways. Um, but hopefully you have a strong enough team where they know you well enough that they can step in and help redirect you back on your path. It definitely resonates with me and I uh, appreciate you sharing those things. And so you were in, you were doing contracting for, you said seven or eight years or something like that? It, no, not that long. Um, off and on a, between five and six years. So with contracting, okay. obviously it's not consistent. It's, you know, I could get a three month job here. I could get a six month job here. You know, the longest assignment I think was about seven months without taking okay. a break which I know is nothing compared to some of the active duty deployments where they're gone that much longer and they don't, you know, they don't come home at all. all right. I got to experience all of that beside the active duty members, which to me was great because I didn't get a chance to do that in active duty because I had my, my detail. Um, so to be able to do it as a contractor, it filled that cup for me because now I actually could see what it's like from both perspectives um, and still be there with them. Cause I was, you know, I'd be sitting in the talk at CQ with all the Marines and here I am in my contractor clothes. So to me, I still felt like I was a part of it and I like that. So. But now you're doing something significantly different. What was the transition from your time picking up those contracts and those gigs and spending time overseas into where you're at right now? And then maybe start that out with, with talk about what you're doing right now and what you're passionate about right now and how you're helping veterans and, and talk about the transition between those two. Okay. Um, definitely wasn't easy. Definitely was not easy coming home. Not so much getting out of the Air Force. Um, that wasn't such a challenging transition for me to come home. The, trans the harder part for me was once I took these contracts and I stayed in that life for as long as I did, there was nothing comparable to it in the States. And I had a problem with that because everything I found of interest was not in this country. Um, so I was torn. I wanted to come back home because this is home. You know, this is my home state. This is, you know, the greatest country in the world. But the kind of missions, you know, they did, they don't need you in Texas. <laughs> they need you in the Middle East. So I had to figure out what, how much longer can I keep going overseas to be a part of this cause? And what do I do when I come home? Because I still have so much desire to serve and regular old jobs just were not cutting the mustard for me. I tried. I tried the nine to five. I tried the office jobs. I was bored out of my mind. It just wasn't, it wasn't fulfilling for me. I needed faster pace. I needed more authority. Once I had my experiences, I knew what my capabilities were, but I just didn't know what to do with all of that. And I think a lot of vets struggle with that. They know what they're capable of, but well, how do they put it into the civilian sector that even remotely fulfills them? Um, question. I think question about that. Sure. Is do you were feeling that way and you did something about it? What was your perception of the people you were working with as you were realizing that you needed something more fast paced and all that stuff? Did you see the people around you kind of reacting to you in a way because you were clearly restless? Well, it wasn't so much that I was restless, but I was a worker. So, <laughs> I, you know, you have, I have, I was raised to, you know, um, everything you do is your reputation. So when you clean the house, you clean it well because people are going to remember how you did it. If you go to school, you get the best grades because people are going to know where you fall. Like it was always kind of that be the best competitive mindset. And it wasn't necessarily family members pushing that on me. I just... I think I just kind of popped out that way. <laughs> I, I inherited that super competitive mindset, probably from my dad. Um, I don't yeah. remember, you know, he passed when I was young, but I have a feeling I get it from him. It's just a genetic thing. But as far as the civilian counterpart, I just felt 
not so much restless, but I just felt like I wasn't valuing my authentic self and I wasn't using my skills even at 50% capacity. So that made me miserable because I know what it's like to be more on the go, go, go side and to come back and have a nine to five job where you're staring at the clock, wondering when your break is, wondering when you can go home, thinking about going home. I just knew this is not how it's supposed to be, at least not for me. So I just noticed that my desire to want to work and get things done was not matching the civilians around me. Like I clearly was in my own lane and traditional jobs just were not a good fit. So what did you do about it? Because you're certainly the kind of person who does something about it, right? What did you do? Right. Well, I did what a lot of vets <laughs> do. I, stu- I, I stuck out the bad jobs just for the money because we all have responsibilities. Yep. <laughs> so many of us <laughs> do that where we hate our jobs, but we just, what are we supposed to do? You have to have a job. You get that beaten into your head. So I stuck out as many as I could until I finally just, I couldn't do it anymore. Like I felt sick to my stomach that I just, I hate this kind of, these kind of jobs. I'm done. So I was just done. I walked away and said, well, what else can I do to make myself more competitive? I'm a big educational advocate. So I'm like, I'll go get my master's degree. So I separated myself after my contracts and decided just to keep going to school. I'm like, I'll just keep going to school. I'm just going to keep going to school. Um, And I felt like that would just give me some downtime from what I was observing in the civilian market to really concentrating on what it is that I want to do now that I'm no longer deploying. So that gave me a little bit of a break. Um, but you know, I still was using my brain. So that's what I did. I transitioned to that. When I realized that the kind of jobs I was drawn to were always going to be similar, um, to the military in some way or a level, I just decided not to fight that just to keep, to keep that on my, um, radar for the kind of employers I want to work for. So yeah, when I came home, I jumped, um, after I knocked out my graduate degree, I worked for a company called Blackhawk. Most people have heard of them. So I did their team development out in California and San Diego. They did some pretty significant layoffs um, with a lot of their contracts. Once again, when you're based off of contracts and you lose contracts, well, you can't keep your team staffed. So when I had to cut my team, that hurt. <laughs> you know, that's not, not a position yeah. I like to be. So I ended up going along with that group as well, um, um, you know, being let go. And that just kind of put me through a tailspin because at that point, I didn't have backup plan. I didn't have another job waiting for me. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do. So that put me um, in a lot of financial hardship, actually. So I ended up leaving California, going to the East Coast temporarily, just to try to regroup and see if maybe the job market was better. Having a hard time out there, too. Couldn't really find anything that made seem like a good fit. So that's actually when I started my very first LinkedIn video. So I just started channeling all this, you know, these messages and these frustrations, you know, and in, in, in the best way that I knew would reach the target audience because I just felt like there's nobody really doing these kind of videos. I'm just going to put myself out there. And so that's kind of when the, the LinkedIn platform started to take off. Well, tell me this before we dig into to between that and also I see on your on your resume, uh, you're on vetfilms.org. Uh, maybe hear a little bit about that. Is that something you're still uh, active in? I'm on the board. Um, It's been an interesting journey with them (laughs) because it's (laughs) been very slow moving. Um, So while I'm still on the board, um, their projects, as far as uh, the last update that I had on them, it seemed like they're kind of at a standstill due to funding. 
So yeah. I haven't been as active on that as I would have preferred. But then again, you know, you really can't be an active board member yeah. if you don't have, you know, the funds in place to be able to really push out the objectives. So it's been um, been a little slow on that side. So that's when I just started kind of pushing the mark on my own, getting more involved with um, the vet community, mostly through LinkedIn, but definitely out in the in the community itself. One last thing then on leading up till now, and then we can kind of dig into what your vision is with what you're spending your energy on with these videos and that. If you could tell yourself of some number of years ago to do something different, if there is something different that you would tell yourself to do, would you? Is there something that you see as uh, you could have done better in your transition plan or anything like that? Well, I mean, I think that all of us probably would say, we, if, you know, if we had known this or we had known that, we would have done this. But I also am a, kind of a spiritual person, and I believe that that's, that's not the way our journey was meant to be. So while, of course, I'd rather have things been a lot more streamlined when I got out of the service, I don't have regrets. Um, all the hardships I had to go through, I like to hope that they're, um, you know, they're, I'm able to pay it forward by, you know, doing what I do with the vets and the vet space and what I'll be doing in the future. So had I not gone through all these things, I wouldn't have these videos. I wouldn't have these conversations. I wouldn't know what I know if I didn't go through all of this stuff. So for me, no, I'd actually would have left everything just the way it was because now in hindsight, I can see how much I've learned from those scenarios. But sure, initially, you know, the transition, <laughs> I don't know too many veterans that have had a wonderful transition story. Not too <laughs> many. You it. hear them every once in a while. They're the unicorns. Well, I got a great job, you know, six yeah. months out from the service and I'm still there. I'm like, oh, but that's rare. That's rare. So and the, one, the ones that are coming to mind are, are folks who, you know, maybe did 20, 25 or 30 and said, you know what I really want to do? is like go work for a contractor and be done you know and go home at 4 30 or 5 o'clock every day those people are generally happy uh if right. you have grander goals uh you end up going through a little bit more of a of, of a turmoil in the transition oh yeah yeah so i mean it comes back to your you know how you value your time what what your goals are what you want to accomplish and when you put yourself at the higher achiever type of person i mean usually they're the ones that kind of have to go through quite the to-do to get where they're getting, but then they, you know, hopefully become inspirational supporters for those that are trying to follow behind or that are stuck in some of those places that we've been through. So I guess trailblazing has been a big part of um, why I don't have regrets on going through everything I've gone through and why I wouldn't change anything because I wouldn't be able to pass on any wisdom had I not. So. Yeah. Yeah. We've been, we've only been talking for whatever it is, 35 or 40 minutes or something like that. And, uh, and that really rings, rings through loud and clear that, uh, the focus and, uh, that you just said the word trailblazer, that's, uh, that, that does sound apropos getting towards the end here of the podcast. You're, you're putting a lot of effort into these videos and what you're doing online. And you're now director of veteran services for, for cloud co-op. Tell us about what your current vision is and what your goals are and where you think you'll, you'll end up you know, down the road? What is the ultimate vision for, for what you're working on right now? Sure. Um, so work-wise, they're kind of two different pieces, but they all will come together, I'm sure, at some point. So without my LinkedIn presence, I wouldn't have gotten my job at Cloud Co-op. So this is what I mean by everything has, you know, intercepts into their, the reasons why things happen. So if I did not do the videos on LinkedIn, uh, my boss wouldn't have known about me for Cloud Co-op, and then he wouldn't have thought that I would have been a good fit for this position. 
what the position to me does um, that ties into what I'm passionate about. I'm very passionate about obviously veterans, but specifically their employment struggles, what they have to go through and how frustrating it is to lose so much sense of yourself when you come home into these jobs that are just poorly mismatched to their strengths. And I know what it feels like to be out on the street and not have a job and you just can't find what you need. And I want to be able to intercept that in any way I can. So what cloud co-op allows me to do, you know, I'm kind of the own captain, my own captain of this program, which is great. So it's, it's the first of its kind, um, meaning that the platform is being created. It's brand new. Um, I have a really strong support from um, a Navy veteran who, who sees the same thing that I see. What we're trying to do with this program is for those veterans that are interested in getting into Salesforce, um, this allows that opportunity for the vets to come in and actually get connected to people that are working on projects, that are looking to fill projects, to meet um, key stakeholders that my boss knows, to, to bridge that gap from, hey, I got a certification, to actually getting a job. Because there's a big lane in between those two pieces that I see a lot of vets fall, trap, fall into the trap with, where they go, hey, I got my BA or my MBA, but now they don't have a job and they just fall in. So there's got to be a piece in between that's getting certified in education to be able to actually meet the people they need to meet to get the jobs. And it, it has to be more than just networking on LinkedIn and applying for jobs. So there's a, there's a piece right there that's not really talked about a whole lot, and that's what this, this opportunity, I see it with Cloud Co-op, allows that bridge to be formed more strongly where actual people are connecting with people. Um, and giving the vets opportunities to, to be, you know, apprentices in Salesforce and actually get their hands on some projects and say, hey, I actually have worked on it. Because what happens is a lot of vets get certified or they jump out and get their MBAs out of the service, but they don't have any civilian experience to tag on to that MBA. So they're still getting snubbed. You know, they're getting Absolutely. snubbed for not having the civilian equivalent experience. So we need to start giving them more opportunities so they can put that experience actually on the resume. So that's what Cloud Co-op fills the bill for, um, for me. And I'm grateful that he jumped in when he did, because at that time I was unemployed as well. So <laughs> I've been in this boat that so many vets are in right now. I know exactly what they're going through. I know this push-pull, what it feels like. Um, so that's, that's, that's where I'm at with that. Um, as far as the LinkedIn, I think it, hopefully the message is pretty clear with what I stand for. Um, and once I started doing the videos out in Florida, they just, they come up as inspiration, but none of them are premeditated. I don't write anything down. Everything is just, what do I feel like I need to say to the vets and for whomever is willing to listen? Because not all these yeah. messages are going to resonate with all, and I'm okay with that. But for the right people, it makes a big difference. Um, and just to know that, you know, getting, getting in-mail messages and having the responses that I get, it just allows vets to to feel like somebody gets them. And I think sometimes as much as we all advocate that we're all there for them, they don't really feel that way. Because I know at times I didn't feel that way. So that's just kind of something that I, you know, I feel driven to do on my own with or without, you know, any particular job. Well, it definitely makes sense when you say that even though we all, we would all like to say that we're there for our comrades and, you know, veterans helping veterans and all that. But the reality is, is everybody ends up everyone does end up having their own, uh, you know, job that they're after and their own family stuff and all that. And you don't have that forced small team interaction 
like you do in, in, in the service. And so it is, uh, it is tough living up to that commitment to be there, you know? Right. And decipher through all the, the legitimate people reaching out as well. Cause I mean, I hate to hate to say it, but it is what it is. There's a lot of people riding out this veteran bandwagon in the space that are in it for their own reasons they are in it for their own, their own motives. And it's not necessarily the good for the veterans and veterans have to sift through all this when they come home. They don't know who they're really supposed to go to. Some people that are heavily promoted on LinkedIn have their own objective. You know, they're, yeah. they're making money off of, you know, it's kind of a love hate relationship for me because on one side, I appreciate those people willing to offer us services, but what are your reasons? What are your motives for offering them? And if it's not coming from the right place, I, I have a problem with that. And so that's are kind of getting thrown into all these different directions. And I'm a neutral party. I don't, I don't make money off of any story that I share. <laughs> so I think there's, yeah. there's something to me being just genuine and them knowing that nobody's bought me. I'm not trying to sell my services. I don't make money off anything I do. I just really genuinely believe in you guys that much. And I want to share these things and get you guys an opportunity to be heard because on this platform, when they start speaking, they don't realize, but everybody on LinkedIn can start seeing who these veterans are. It gives them an opportunity to be heard, even if they're a little bit more shy, it gives them a platform. Well, knowing uh, how, how your focus has played out and, and where you've, where you've gotten with that, it might be interesting to consider some ways to, uh, to activate uh, veterans who have a similar passion. Uh, you know, maybe the, maybe their channel of communication isn't the LinkedIn video kind of thing. Obviously everyone has different ways they want to communicate, but maybe coming up with more ways to activate people who are as passionate as you are and just didn't put two and two together to, to get their voice out. That might be an interesting way for, for you to take the, the passion that you have. Oh, sure. And I mean, I've noticed it, you know, as I've, I've, as I've built more and more, and I've definitely been taking my time, I'm not in a hurry to, you know, blow up my LinkedIn. I'm not in a hurry to have, you know, 100,000 followers. I don't really look at it that way, because that's, it's not a contest for me. I don't have anything to prove. I, you know, no offense, I don't really care how many followers I have. That's not, that's not my top (laughs) tier priority to see how many people, I, I don't care. I don't have any other social media either. So I've always been very um, to myself for the most part until all of this kind of unveiled. But I definitely have seen veterans step up, ones that you wouldn't have known necessarily had a voice, um, ones that had stories that just start making their own videos or posts or are bold enough to write an article. And I can see it, even though a lot of the times it's kind of behind the scene, I can see the um, the fire getting ignited. And if anything, that's that's yeah. all I'm wanting, just to kind of bolster them to – you know, to push forward and to be seen and be heard and not be afraid to be different and own the fact that we may not all be viewed with, you know, sunshine and rainbows, but we, we need to talk about it. So, <laughs> yep. It's uh it's been a, a fantastic conversation and I would normally ask where all can, where all can people reach out and connect with you? But I think you've already answered that question. It's on LinkedIn. That's, that's your channel, yeah, right? I keep it easy. Just LinkedIn. I haven't <laughs> unfolded anything else as of yet. So yeah, I'm there for, Anybody that wants to connect or, or jump on. So, and uh, one last piece then with, uh, with your role at uh, cloud co-op, is there anything that, uh, people, any way for people to engage there? Is there, are there any programs that you would want to advocate for with that? Or is that, you know, do you have internal projects only any, anything they can, people can learn more about cloud co-op? 
Oh, sure. So, well, well, they can go to our website. Obviously, that'd be the easiest way for the cloud co-op. Um, and then there's, if they look under the, under the tab, it has to do with veterans, where you can just go into it if you're a veteran. Our program for the apprenticeship is actually called Vets to Cloud. Um, so, anyway, it's just a specific name. They go there. They can see what it is, why we're different, why we're – and we're completely non-funded. We are not a nonprofit. I just want to put that out there. We are not here taking grant money. Um, David Franklin, the CEO, is the, he's the Navy veteran and the founder. He wanted to do this to help veterans with nobody handing him anything. And I had nothing but respect for that because there's so many veteran nonprofits right now. Um, he, anything he puts out to the veterans comes completely out of his pocketbook with no expectation of grant money. So I had a lot of respect for that. Um, yeah. And that's a whole other conversation on the vet nonprofits and what's happening right now. Um, so I just wanted to share that. It's an honorable intention, and he's not getting anything out of this except trying to help you guys out. So that meant a lot to me. So I agree. Uh, please do pass on, uh, you know, my gratitude personally and the, and the rest of the Garrison Project. And if there's anything we can do to help, let me know. And I would be glad maybe the, you know, something to, uh, you know, be glad to post some links on on our website or something like that. Whatever it is to give credit where credit's due. And kind of putting your money where your mouth is and, and being dedicated to veteran causes. And, uh, and again, really appreciate uh, your vision and what you've done uh, as a veteran. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, I apologize uh, if anyone else couldn't tell. I've been fighting a cold here while we've been talking. So thank you for being patient. And uh, if you want just to hang on the line for a second uh, as we wrap up here, really, Karen, thank you so much for, for being on the show. I appreciate it. Yep. Thank you for having me. Hey, everybody. Please check us out at garrisonproject.com. Reach out to me, Dan, at thegarrisonproject.com if you have any thoughts uh, on the show. And stay tuned for our, for our next episode. Thanks, everybody. You have been listening to the Garrison Project Podcast with Dan Edinger. Veterans connecting with veterans across generations through the power of storytelling. Look for us on the web and social media, and please share this podcast with your friends and family. Thanks for the support. Like us whenever you listen to our podcast and stay tuned for more episodes.